TNE Network. You're listening to the Umami Podcast, conversations with producers, purveyors, and scholars exploring food choices we make as a culture. I'm Elise Ballard, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Chris Feifel. Thanks for being here. Today, we're talking to Krishnendu Ray, professor of food studies at NYU Steinhardt. His book, The Ethnic Restaurateur, is about the anthropology and sociology of the decisions we make about where and what to eat. Elise, who are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Krishnendu Ray. He is the professor emeritus um, at NYU Steinhardt in the Gastronomical Studies program. And he's someone who's written a series of books, uh, the first one being The Migrant's Table, the second one being The Ethnic Restaurateur, and that's what we want to talk to him about. Do you think he's working on a trilogy? I know he's working on a trilogy. Thanks for asking, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I imagine we're not going to hit all of the, in a trilogy of books, we're not going to hit all of the topics on this conversation with Krishnendu. But what I remember is loving this conversation with Krishnendu. You feel good about this one? I feel good about this one, yes. Would you like to talk to him again? Yeah, yes. Do you think he'd talk to us again? Oh my God, I know he would. He'd be stoked about it, I'm sure. All right, well, let's listen to this episode and then maybe we'll talk to him again. Great, let's do it. Hi there, it's Krishnandu. Hi, Krishnandu. It's Elise, how are you? Hey, Elise, how are you? I am very well, thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time. I, I hope your travels in India went smoothly, went well. Yeah, yeah. Like India is always a bit of an adventure, but yes. <laughs> Excellent. Hi, Krishnendu. My name's Chris. I'm a co-host on the podcast. Hi, Chris. Um, how Good was to it? hear you. <laughs> nice to hear you too. <laughs> yeah. I've like spent the first half of my life in India. I go back every year um, and I've taken my son every year since uh, 2001. Uh, but I usually just visit family. I don't get to travel too much. Uh, but this time I did. I did uh, Kolkata, then I went to the south, Pondicherry, uh, etc. Wow. How, how much of a cultural difference from north to south is there in India? Huge. Huge. Yeah. I don't understand a word once I cross the Euro, uh, kind of the Indo-European Dravidian language boundary, uh, which is in southern India. I speak four Indian languages. Uh, but they're all from Eastern India, Odia, Bengali, Hindi. Uh, and so once I cross into, say, Tamil Nadu, Pondicherry, uh, I almost do not understand a word. So it's more like Europe with even bigger differences. So think about Poland and think about Sicily. Sure. Yeah. How, so how many different languages are spoken? So there are 125 mother tongues in India, <laughs> uh, and about 20,000 dialects. And my argument is wherever there's a dialect, there's a cuisine. Mm. So anyone who says anything about Indian food is probably, you can find exceptions. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so wherever there is a dialect, there is a cuisine. That's a quotable right there. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> And that's so interesting. So that means that there are many, many, many cuisines, and we must have only brushed the surface here in this country. Exactly. So it's like mostly we get a version of northern Indian restaurant food, you know, and now we are beginning to get a bit of southern Indian. You can see like Chettinad. Chettinad comes from Tamil Nadu, which is more like Chettiar which was a, a group of traders across mm. the of Bengal. Uh, and then, of course, dosas, idlis, vadas, if you have had very um, widely distributed, like what is called tiffin food, southern Indian tiffin food, often associated with, in fact, temple cuisine in southern India. Is there a way to discern what style uh, uh, and what type of cuisine based on location um, when, say, I go out to an Indian restaurant? Good question. You know, there are uh, generally, and that's like, say, I'm speaking from New York, 
different estimates, 300 to 350 Indian restaurants. Most are serving a Bangladeshi interpretation of Northern Indian, like the chicken tikka masala, uh, tandoori chicken, uh, butter chicken. Uh, I'm going to get hungry bar. during this, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think I think what's going to happen is the the um, the fat is going to change in southern India. Uh, it's going to be a lot more coconut oil. In eastern India, it's going to be a lot more mustard oil. Uh, traditionally, uh, northern and western India would be general sunflower oil, peanut oil. These are all, in fact, very modern oils: peanut and sunflower. The traditional oils are sesame, mustard, coconut, and coconut oil is very crucial to southern peninsula. Mm. Yeah. I love that you used oils to paint an example of those variances regionally, and I think that really plays into what we want to talk about here, which is a little bit specificity in cuisine and how that gets re- reflected in uh, other countries, <laughs> including including the U.S. So let's back up for a second here, and I want to begin by asking you about how you didn't even think about cooking until you were in college at age 20. And then there were some feminist friends or something that brought it to the fore for you. And eventually it became your area of study. A quote that I got from you is, um, you said, the body sometimes lives in a world that the mind cannot yet think, the tongue articulate or the fingers inscribe. Tell us about that. Yeah, so in fact, uh, that's an old anthropological insight, right? That uh, uh, some of the most important aspects of culture is hidden in plain view. That's why it takes sometimes an outsider uh, to go and visit a place and do ethnographic work. In my case, it was the opposite. Um, Me coming to the U.S. to go to grad school uh, became what I sometimes call kind of an epistemic insight, opened Mm -hmm. my eyes to a couple of things. Uh, One is the first thing you mentioned. I realized I had eaten at least three meals a day and uh, I'd never thought about it. I'd never thought about, in any depth, I'd thanked people who had fed me, uh, uh, probably tangentially, but it never was a deeper realization that I'm living off someone else's work and that someone else uh, is in all probability, like in many parts of the world, and in my case it was too, a woman, my mother. Mm. And uh, in India, if you are part of a middle class, you're part of a lower middle class. My father was a salesman. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And uh, people have uh, domestic servants, um, partly because labor is very cheap. And so my mother uh, and various uh, domestic helps that had gone through our household, who had not directly cooked, but had, for instance, ground the spices. Uh, there was no mixing. We didn't have a mixer. We didn't have, we didn't have uh, uh, electric uh, spice grinders. It was all done on a matate like uh, called shilnora. And uh, so the coconut would be ground, the chilies, the ginger, the garlic, the onion would be turned into a paste. That would be domestic help in most middle class households. Mm. And uh, the cooking was done by mom. And, and uh, I never um, kind of seriously thought about that until I left India, I came to the U.S. And then, of course, I had to cook and I had to feed myself and then I had to feed my friends, the grad school friends. And that was the kind of the, that's the window that opened for me to say, wow, I haven't thought about this uh, and I need to think about it. And I need to think about food in everyday life. Who does the work? Uh, what is taste? What is the role of taste in, social, in, in everyday life? And that is how it slowly opened up in grad school. I love how food has a fascinating ability to raise these existential questions. Um, you talked about something like um, in cooking, you begin to feel and touch and um, see other dimensions, other things through different sets of eyes. Um, and that sort of forces you to consider the connection. Yeah, the tactile um, experience. I mean, just when you were uh, telling us that story uh, about your experience, the it, going through my head was um, the hand grinding 
of mm. everything and what you know what we may lose from using a machine or just a little a little maybe a numbness to the experience both mm. making and tasting once we start to automate some of those absolutely and it's like uh, this i just came back from india and uh, every time i go to india i realize uh, i carry a pair of tongs uh, uh, because uh, i have gotten used to using a pair of tongs to flip a piece of protein or even vegetable and sear it um, and i realized mm. uh, this time i got another pair of tongs took it to my sister in law in delhi and offered it to her uh, she put it away and <laughs> i opened the drawer and i saw it was filled with tongs that i had bought brought every year <laughs> and no one was using it <laughs> okay, first <laughs> of all, no what is used? Tongs. What's used it's, instead? It's basically laid out because you see every piece of protein and vegetable is cut much more small uh, size and shapes. Mm. So it's a lot of stewed foods, uh, uh, soupy foods. That's very close to an Indian peasant idiom. So these things are not seared and flipped. Uh, and, the, and the vessels they're cooked in is called kalai. They are like these concave vessels that tongs are not very useful to flip large mm. pieces of protein. I realized uh, I, I, it was like a shocking revelation <laughs> to me. Uh, I, I realized I have picked up, you can call it a good habit or a bad habit, from my chef friends at the Culinary Institute of America that I had started using tongs and now I cannot cook without tongs. <laughs> uh, and no one cooks with tongs in the Indian households I've mm. been in. The only thing they do is they flip the chapati it's often blistered the last minute it's mm. done straight on the fire but it's often done with that fingertips and some people have talked about it and written about it how they prefer the exactly the question chris you're asking is is they feel they like that tactile feeling that heat on the fingertip to flip it uh, i don't i don't have enough skill or courage to do it which also tells you about that very tactile <laughs> proximity mm-hmm. and uh, almost like domestic archit- relationship between taste and what you're making and domestic architecture and uh, infrastructure. Uh, anyway, we can go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> a, I love that. I love that illustration. That's a good one. Um, there, I think this is a, a, a good seg- segue into um, touching on the ethnic restaurateur, the book you wrote in 2016, which is our original reason for connecting with you. Um, I want to ask for uh, you know your 30-second commercial, so to speak, of, of, of that book, but I, I want to start by talking about um, the the stereotypes and the expectations that we come into a foreign food with, uh, our inability to uh, see the trees for the forest, um, and and what uh, what that does to the way that we connect with ethnic cuisine in our culture. Yeah, so <clears throat> the book, uh, The Ethnic Restaurateur, came out of what was left out of my first book, which was uh, The Migrants' Table, which was mostly about what people do, immigrants, recent immigrants in the United States, what they do at home, um, how their meals change, how they don't change. For instance, breakfast changes dramatically, uh, and, and uh, uh, dinner uh, stays the same. A much more conserving role, conservative role in re- retaining culture. So I had done that work on home cooking, uh, and inevitably it led to the question, what is the relationship between the home cooking of immigrants, the immigrants I had studied, which is South Asian, which is that is Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, et cetera, immigrants in the United States, and uh, how that food and that experience changes when we get into the restaurant. So the ethnic restaurant is basically the second part of my trilogy. My next work is going to be on street vending. Um, nice. going mm. to the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to so, ask you what's uh, up next. I was <laughs> <wondering too>. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, in the ethnic restaurant tour, I, I basically look at, I start with experience. If you go to a restaurant, what is an ethnic restaurant? 
how is it different from the way we classify what we call foreign restaurants or what we classify what we call american in this case uh, native restaurants and ethnic is a particular category uh, naming mechanism that was born in 19 around 19 late 1950s was dominant through the 60s and 70s and it's uh, slowly started petering out uh, into the second decade of the 21st century and there was a sense in which ethnic was about something between not foreign upper class foreign not foreign mm-hmm. as in french uh, so french is never considered ethnic in this classification and not american either something in between and this in betweenness was uh, what i saw from the literature looking at newspapers looking at classification systems was how uh, what is called ethnic is basically the food of poor immigrants and uh, the word itself as i said became visible in the late 50s uh, into the into the peaked in the 80s and uh, this classification was linked to the idea of what is of the south and what is foreign often foreign was seen as high prestige if it's swiss french uh, by the way italian plays a very interesting role for the longest time italian was very high prestige uh, as long as there were no poor italians coming into the united states when poor italians started coming into the united states which is between 1880 and the 1920s the prestige of italian food collapsed and it does not climb up again until you get into the 1970s how do i know that i know that from the price that italian restaurants could charge uh, from about the 1970s 80 so this book is about two things sorry i'm going to going on too long here no it's great like like a good uh, t- teacher all, every, all of your descriptions are making me want to ask more questions <laughs> Sorry for that. Uh Keep going. Like, okay, let me try to let me try to focus in <laughs> which is which is we know from um data which is uh, birthplace and uh, occupation data we have in the US census from the 1850 onwards we know that uh bakers, butchers, tavern keepers, saloon keepers remember there there were no restaurants until you get much later in history. uh were all run by what are called foreign born in the census okay they tended to be italians and germans uh, uh some eastern european jews and uh, those of you who know that some of your listeners may know their grandparents for instance often were part of this feeding occupations and uh, that of course changes as that migration slowly peters out and new migrants come in which is post 1965 who are mostly Asians and Latin Americans. Uh and so I looked around me in the kitchens in restaurants and almost everyone was Asian or Latin American. So my first question was is this pattern a recent one is this an old one? Um and uh, the answer to that question it's an ancient pattern in American history and we have evidence going back at least into the uh, 1850s. And then the second set of question was what is different between what's happening now and what happened say, in the 1850s and the big difference is in the 1850s it was mostly germans uh, german speaking and then in the 1880s there is the, the mediterranean that is so there's italian there's the greek uh, and eastern european jews and today in my time when i was looking at it mostly asians uh, chinese uh, and latin american mexican el salvadoran to nicaraguan So this became this book about this transition in labor and in transition in taste what is the relationship between the two So it's full of facts and figures about this you you broke it down in several different quantifiable ways what were some of those ways Maybe there are too many facts and figures I realize and like I'm uh, over cautious I uh, do an over abundance of evidence uh to write a book if i go to write the book again if i do the next edition i'll pick out some of the facts <laughs> it's too much i realize it's too much i'm just being careful and cautious uh so one of the bigger patterns uh was the emergence of the american restaurant which is a very 
kind of a 20th century phenomenon. It was there in the 19th century, it becomes more important at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. And uh, two things change. The people who work in them change, the languages they speak, uh, and uh, the cooking they do at home and in the restaurant, and our taste changes, the taste of the consumer uh, changes. So my attempt in the book was to trace as much as I could the relationship between these two transformations, mm-hmm. one in taste and demand by the consumer, and one, the producer in the kitchen. So these are largely, think about it, how paradoxical it is. It is poor people from other countries who have always fed Americans their own mm-hmm. food. Poor people that, from other very, countries very feeding Americans yeah. their own food. And, and in, in, some, in some way must also influence the flavors and, the, and the, the evolving tastes of Americans. Exactly. I mean, like, so with the, uh, we think about all the lettuces we eat, all the green broccoli rubs, broccoli. <laughs> we eat, they're strongly influenced by Italian, the last phase. Now the avocados we are eating and the cilantro mm-hmm. and the chili yeah. are all strongly influenced by a strong Mexican imprint. So many uh, examples uh, of that. You know, and so especially vegetables, especially produce and fruits, uh, seem to be the thing uh, the foreign-born immigrant teaches the American how to eat. Mm. So that is uh, related to a, a concept you bring up in your book, which is the transaction in taste or the transaction of taste and sort of why that's a, a, a core concept here. Yes. So, for instance, I'll give you an example, uh, and this links uh, to my earlier example. Uh, if you look at any large region in the world, like Europe, there's going to be a, a difference in the fats used, right? So, if you in Southern Europe, you can make a broad generalization closer to the Mediterranean, it's going to be closer to olive oil, and there's a line running right through the middle of Europe, uh, which is olive oil and butter, okay, uh, or in fact, animal fats, uh, chicken fat. Eastern Europe, uh, etc. So you can almost see a division of it. So of course, as these people come in, not only do they introduce us to the various vegetables, uh, canned and pickled stuff uh, that that uh, we eventually uh, get fond of, uh, but also the various kinds of oil and the discussion of olive oil, which we of course think no end of today. And mm. It's very good for us. It's great. It's tasty. <laughs> You should think. You should listen to Americans talking about olive oil as greasy, oily. If you have ever touched olive oil, hmm. very greasy and oily, um, and uh, that it has a pungent taste. And all these Italians eating all this garlic, uh, mm. and garlic was always a signifier of difference. So it was both a difference and yet also a transaction. And Americans learned to eat all those salad greens, all those greens, olive oil, olives. And along with it, of course, also good wine. That was a totally mm. foreign object for a largely Anglo-Saxon settler population coming from Northern Europe, which was not much used to wine. Uh, and so most of our culinary culture, after a generation or two, becomes, in fact, the food of the relatively recent immigrants who have moved who have moved into the country and slowly moved up the social ladder, their food becomes what we call American food, just like pasta is to the American food or pizza is American food. Foods become fashionable. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so there is, uh, the, the relationship with fashion is intriguing. I mean, first, um, human beings are very fashion conscious because we are social beings. So uh, my uh, my understanding of fashion is the fashion is a function, not that we are silly and superficial chasing fashions, but we are fashionable because, in fact, we are social. So we wear clothes like each other, like all my students in the classroom today. Uh, they think they are very distinctively attired, they're each one of them making a statement. And you take a picture and come back to that picture 10 or 20 years from now, you say, oh my God, that is so 2023. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's because there is a kind of a social convergence of mm. uh, their particular types uh, and of attire. Uh, so also with uh, with food, and of course we experiment with new foods that come in. And new foods in the American context has always been food brought in brought in by immigrants, partly because 
that has been the source of American labor from mm. the very beginning. Remember, all of the Americas, and specifically the United States, Canada, North America, specifically the United States, uh, there was a lot of land. There was relatively less people, partly because of the decimation of the Native American population, partly because it was less dense, which made it attractive. So it always attracted labor. And labor came from Northern Europe, uh, what is United Kingdom today, then it shifted to Southern Europe and it shifted to Eastern Europe. Today it has shifted to Asia and Latin America. That means what? Geography changes. Changing geography means the ecology changes, what grows in these places changes, and these are the things people bring in and people bring in the memory of and introduce Americans mm. to it as foreign food. I remember distinctly when I ate my first avocado, I disliked it quite acutely. Mm. I think it's a I said, it's a big, fat, fatty, bland uh, fruit, uh, totally uninterested in it. I had to eat at least 10, 12 times because, before I was totally converted, and today I can eat it every day. Okay? <laughs> and that's, that's exactly, and that's a function of fashion. The same reason I started eating sushi. I disliked it. Um, if you're not used to, if you're not that part, that's not part of your palate. You quite, I like dislike, I, I come from rice and fish culture. But we never ate anything raw. Mm. Okay? Mm -hmm. in, in tropics, you don't for a very good reason. Uh, and uh, when I first ate sushi, I ate it because everyone at the culinary institute was talking about it. <laughs> we were uh, we were watching Iron Chef Japan, uh, and I had uh, two stepchildren. Then uh, they wanted to try sushi because it was becoming a cool thing. We used to live in Rangcliffe, Rangback, which was just then uh, escalating into a fashionable. Uh, and uh, again, I disliked it. Uh, and it took me a dozen times to develop a palette for it, to develop an understanding mm. how I should even make a, a criteria of judgment. So once I did, now I can eat sushi, not every day, but often enough. Okay? And so that's it's how new things enter. And they enter because, in fact, we are curious, partly because of ways of fashion, Usually the young introduce it to us, like my stepchildren in some ways, put, put pressure. And then the rest of us have, get, have to get used to it and develop a palate for it and a capacity to make judgment about it. Now with that, do, do you also find that the introduction of new foods um, are going to affect your biology um, differently. And so it takes, you know, one to 12 times or so to eat it for maybe your stomach and the chemistry going on in there to accept the new food. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a mix of kind of neophobia and neophilia, what both mm. psychologists and physiologists call, partly because in some ways food is the thing what you become, right? So there's always... I think a conserving tendency of not uh, as an omnivore, that's the om so-called omnivore's dilemma. Am mm. I going to eat this new thing uh, and am I going to make it in some ways incorporated to my body? So it's, it's about my palate, it's my physiology, it's my psychology, and, and it's my taste. And increasingly, we of course know it's my gut, which is linked mm. also to my mental health. Absolutely. And there, I mean, there's arguments to be made about, um, are, you know, are we raising wheat, uh, as an example, um, um, because it, we're able to, you know, make a bunch of, um, make a bunch of uh, profitable crops and blah, blah, blah. Or is wheat cultivating us by getting dependent upon what it's turning our, you know, our gut chemistry into? Absolutely. Wheat or corn, right? That's, that's exactly it's, it's a mutual increasingly we used to think we are the masters of the world and increasingly we realize it's mutual kind of a development of uh, it's like multi-species sensibility mm. we are partly what our gut microbiome is right mm. uh, this, and this. the relationship between us and the gut microbiome is a much more dynamic one uh, and um, uh, we have to be much more attuned to it and so this is kind of this dynamic relationship between the old and the new. So there's a biology to it. There's a uh, kind of a psychology to it. And there's a sociology to it. My, most of my work is on the social aspect of it, the sociological aspect. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, this uh, more than we think, the stomach is kind of driving the ship. And in, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, in probably the kindest way, food is the the most palatable cultural exchange. It, 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 I think it, it allows the different cultures to experience just, uh, you know, I'm going to just keep hitting the puns, a little flavor. Um, and, uh, it, and it seems like the most gentle way to introduce a new culture. Um, I don't necessarily have a question there. <laughs> no, 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 it is. And also, also, also uh, in some ways, more and more work is showing that human beings, of course, uh, have moved, have always moved. We, in fact, ha became human beings by moving through Africa, moving out of Africa, going to all the places in the world. A and in some ways, there's a dynamic relationship between settling and moving. Okay, I think mm. historically we have overstated this idea about roots and stability. That's one dimension of it. Human beings have always moved. Yeah. And that's the nature of it. Of course, the rate of movement, the volume of movement, and the velocity of movement has changed because of modes of transportation and increasingly modes of communication. And I think those are very interesting transformations that we are living through. Our ancestors lived through as mobile hunter-gatherers. Uh, we did not just move one shot from hunter-gathering to agriculture. That was over thousands of years, slow back and forth, okay? And then, of course, the great migrations of the, uh, what the United States was remade to was the great migrations of the 18th and especially the 19th century, which was largely European out-migration through these various regions with different palettes, with different uh, uh, crops, with different tastes. And, and we, we leave some things behind, we bring some things new. And of course, uh, African-Americans uh, brought as slaves were part of this kind of waves of remaking of American uh, agriculture. In, 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 this, in the case of African-Americans, for instance, rice growing, and also in terms of our palate. How do you how do you wrestle with um, the fine line between heavy anthropology and heavy, um, you know, uh, topics on food, food preparation, food restaurateurs and stuff? Because you, I don't know if you're purposely studying the anthropology um, or if you just have a general appreciation of it. But it seems that one you can't have one without the other. Yeah, no, good question. I mean, it's a good way to kind of uh, get into the minutia of. Uh, Disciplines, right? Uh, I, I'm coming from. A, I'm in a department called nutrition and food studies. It was born out of this very idea we were talking about that uh, nutrition is not only about nutrients. It is not nutritionism, but it is also about cultures of eating, modes of eating, uh, sociality related to it. So that was uh, Marion Nestle's uh, kind of the great invention of this department, that we are not just going to be nutritional scientists, we're also going to be historians, we're also going to hire anthropologists, and they, that's the context in which they hired me as a sociologist. And this, uh, 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 and the discipline of the field, it's not a discipline, it's a field, is called food studies. And food studies is basically born through an anthropology of food and sociology of taste, and a little bit of continental philosophy. If you combine the three together, you get what we call food studies. Today, it's, it's a very, it's a baby interdisciplinary field born in the uh, mid-1990s. There are a couple of places in the world. There are a lot more places in the world that do anthropology of food. And to answer your question directly, the people in the academy who have taken food seriously for the longest time are anthropologists. Mm. So in some ways, to be a food studies scholar, you have to master uh, a bit of anthropology. That's really good. I, I'm glad that, that that clarification came up because I think that's important. It's, it's important context on baseline for this argument. Um, I want to go back a little bit to talk about the integration of cultures through food in various ways and via various experimentations and talk about how also that integration can lead to uh, naive stereotypes and expectations that contribute to perhaps the loss of subtlety or multidimensionality or regionality. 
in the way that a cuisine is presented to us. And I guess that's very specific to the United States in, in, in my thinking. But what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I think there are two aspects. Uh, one is there, there is this relationship to new and different. And in American culture, that largely exhibits itself through immigrant cultures uh, and uh, let's say, the, uh, transatlantic slave trade and then immigrant cultures, uh, from indentured servants, from the Irish to the German to the uh, Italian to the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera. And in this relationship, there is both a difference and a curiosity. And here's the second part, which the, my book, The Ethnic Restaurant, uh, is about. There's a certain kind of a, what, what academics call symbolic violence. There's a kind of a disdain and mm. disgust that poor people's food is not paying attention to. Only rich people's food, elite food, is what is, uh, is refined and beautiful and good to taste. And one of my main arguments through my whole work has been basically to draw attention to our Eurocentric assumptions in American taste. The fact that uh, we think about uh, wine as very refined and sophisticated. Uh, the way you think about wine, that uh, uh, there should be certain kinds of grape varietals grown in particular regions, and there are white grapes, uh, white wines, and red wines, and sparkling wines, and still wines. These classifications, by the way, are very recent, very modern, very French. Uh, Greeks, historically, have always mixed salt water with their wine. Uh, Germans uh, drink their wine always, often. That's why you see all these spritzes, etc. So people have always had things like wine in complex local idioms about it, like a dialect, like a language. Uh, we, what we do often is from a distance, I think Americans have done that, um, the idea that only some food cultures are worth paying close attention to. Mm. The French sauces, uh, the French, uh, uh, the grape varietals from the terroir and the region. So we have learned to do that with wine. We have learned to do that subsequently with Italian wines. Uh, we are doing that now with Greek wines cheeses uh, and processed meats and uh, but uh, in a sense uh, there's a lot more in the world every cuisine in the world you take uh, say China or say India which from far looks like one place is really hundreds of thousands of mm. cuisines just like Italian just like French in some ways so one of the aspects of my work has been to kind of remind people is just as we are careful to pay attention to French cuisine, French wine, French meats, French cheeses, and Italian wines and cheeses, we should be doing the same thing to other cuisines in the world. We, we have been very good at doing it to, for instance, Japanese food. And my argument is that is linked to the rise of Japan as a major economic and cultural mm. power. We are right now doing it to Korean food. If you look at uh, uh, Michelin data, if you get a chance to uh, talk about it, Michelin, when it came to New York City and Michelin today, there's been a fourfold increase in the coverage of Korean restaurants in the Michelin guides. There's been a threefold increase in um, Japanese uh, restaurants. So we are doing well uh, about paying attention, this capacity to be attentive and make finer distinctions. Uh, it is okay to start uh, looking at a, a, a food, tasting a food from far for the first time. We cannot make finer distinctions. Uh, but as, as just like the avocado, just like the dolls, okay, it's not one kind. There are probably hundred thousands kinds of dolls in India, which is legume mm. soups, right? And so, uh, uh, to be attentive to these differences in culture. These are often poor people's culture because we meet them as immigrants in this country. They are worth paying as much attention to as haute cuisine in very fine dining restaurants in a nice glass of wine. Nothing wrong with those things. Those are terrific things. We should be paying as much attention to these other cuisines and make, being 
learning how to make finer distinctions. And, and you know, it, history shows us, too, something that was considered a poor person's food has, you know, called lobster, has risen to now what is fine cuisine. And it seems like those strata have a, a fluid nature to it because of style and maybe even, you know, what's available for a region or what can be shipped and, and brought to a region. But that, it seems uh, um, a malleable um, metric with what is considered the, the elegant, the fine food and what the poor food is. Exactly. And lobster is a terrific example. Uh, part of it is because there's a lot of New York rich people had homes in Maine and <laughs> in fact ate what and saw what the local people were eating. And this was partly a way to gesture towards their summer homes in the Northeast, you know. And so it's partly fashion, uh, partly what I call class hierarchy uh, and, and, uh, and different kinds of food entered, like the example of olive oil. Olive oil was considered poor people's uh, food, wretched, okay, and, and too pungent. Uh, and now it has totally flipped at the other end of it. It's very clearly happening to Italian food uh, in front of our eyes. And a lot of my data in the book, uh, in fact, uh, uh, on based on Zagat's and then the National Restaurant Association's data, and then I eventually did work on Yelp and uh, Michelin, it shows this dramatic transformation of Italian from the 1970s to a very high end by the 21st century, for sure. Happened with Japanese, happening with Korean, happening, by the way, with Greek uh, food, along with wine, along with the taste for resinous wine. Remember how we used to react to resin mm. in, uh, in, in those Greek wines. <laughs> now it's fashionable. All those organic, biodynamic wine is basically end of the old regime about what wine, good wine ought to be, which is a very 20th century mm -hmm. French description. We that are finally moving away from it. And new tastes are coming in, including new wines, new cheeses, new ways of drinking these wines, cheeses, and of course, produce and vegetables, including avocado, cilantro, etc. Mm. I want to follow on that, that comment uh, to ask about food marketing and its role, especially in the U.S. So, <clears throat> I mean, food marketing is kind of a complex thing. There's one ubiquity, which is a lot of things are available and visible in the marketplace but only some of the things are kind of sold and sometimes upscaled and pushed. It is often, that is often done to processed food. Uh, and of course, remember, wine is one of the most processed food, uh, which is why there's so much value added. There's so much money in it. That's why there's so much money put into marketing. In it. it is a lot less likely that a vegetable or a fruit in itself uh, will become will get caught up uh, in the marketing hype, but there's kind of some examples. Avocado mm -hmm. itself, avocados, avocados, yeah. You know, it's like everyone, everywhere. I took students to Sydney, and everyone was eating avocado <laughs> in Sydney and everywhere else. So it happens to certain things, quinoa among grains, mm. and there's a trend like now. I the other day I saw fresh turmeric. Now uh, that's mm. that's recent. Uh, we are moving from the ground processed turmeric fresh turmeric turmeric so there's always some degree of fashion subcultures which are often <laughs> celebrity <linked> to <laughs> taste and something some claims about uh, health which are often uh, and i think a good example of that uh, uh, at least is the uh, is this so-called superfoods okay, as i mm. tell people there are a lot of very good foods in the world. There is no superfood in the world. Superfood <laughs> is a marketing <laughs> I thought parsley. Yeah. Yeah. Totally marketing. <laughs> that actually brings up a really important point uh, about globalization, something that you and I uh, talked about in our earlier conversation about there are lots of negatives about globalization, um, but maybe some positives too. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, for me, uh, I see globalization as a very long process. It's not recent. Many people, too many people think about it as relatively recent. And just the examples I'm giving you. All these Irish workers and German workers who were coming to the United States in the 19th century was part of a globalization process. 
So globalization goes a lot further back than we think what globalization, some people assign, say, 1980s to today or maybe 1970s to today. That's what all it means is the source of people and produce and food has changed. But the process, in fact, the rate of number of people who were coming into the United States in the 19th century was kind of almost at about the same rate as today. It's about 13% of the population at a peak time. They were just coming from different parts of the world. So globalization is an old process. It is as old as capitalism, which is very popular for Americans. So it's partly a process of moving of people. And as I have said before, in fact, it's human movement and movement of produce. Uh, I just came back from India. In a, a, a plateau, Malwa Plateau in India, uh, there's a, a cluster of baobab trees that grows there that has obviously come from Madagascar in East Africa. We don't know who, when, thousands of years ago, because some of these trees came back thousands of years ago. Mm. And the fruit of the baobab is used as a kind of a sour ingredient that's very high in vitamin C. There we go. Again, another superfood, um, uh, which is used as uh, often called manduki imli or khorasani imli, literally means the tamarind of mandu. Mandu is the region. So that is probably those trees come from a stream that is thousands of years old. Take coconut, the way it spread, the rice, the way it spread between southern China and Eastern India, for instance, and, and uh, the Gangetic Valley. So all these crops, the way they have moved, that is ancient, okay? People's movement is ancient. So partly I kind of want to kind of be less uh, melodramatic about this thing called globalization. Yes, the n- number of people, the velocity, and the distance people are moving has changed because of transportation, etc. But this is an old process, and that's why my understanding of food culture is always about roots and, and routes of mobility. All food cultures involved a certain kind of stability, rootedness, but also circulation. Mm. That's well. Sorry, well did I said. go on too much? Yet? No, you. I think that was a that was a point well made. And I and I love the idea and something I've been chewing on for a bit are, are the the echoes of ancient arch, uh, mm. agriculture. Um, exactly. You know those those um, waves that they put through different cultures where you think you know we've always had this and it's like that was actually introduced into this area. Exactly. <laughs> mm. um, like and, like. Go ahead. Yeah, like take uh, British, like say fish and chips, right? Fish and chips comes out of Jewish migrants. You know, it was like what yesterday's was new and global and globalizing mm. is today's traditional food. Okay. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah, it's fascinating to think of all of the examples. Rice itself, corn, especially the staples. There's story of Marco Polo. Tomatoes. You know, exactly. creating spaghetti. Exactly. Potatoes. I come from Mm. Eastern India, Bengalis. We think we are the only people in the world who define potatoes as a vegetable. We'll see rice and vegetables. It's rice and potatoes. (laughs) And and it's it's a Peruvian, uh, uh, kind of a Peruvian root. Uh, Mm. And it spreads, and it spreads like wildfire, chilies. Most Southeast Asian, Chinese, and Indians think it's chilies. They've always had it, obviously. It came after 1600, right? We have totally naturalized it. Now we define Indian cuisine by chili, something that is just about 400 years old. Right. So I think the intercontinentality of food is is food. That is what it is. And that's why it is so important for us to have this discussion with you about ethnicity, about what that is and how it manifests in the choices that we make as consumers and that brings me to um, what I think might might um, help us begin to wrap up here. And that is, mm-hmm. I want to ask some really specific calls to action um, at the individual level, at the media level, 
at the restaurateur level. Um, just some examples of, of what uh, we can think of. And maybe we start with, with eaters in general, people who are eating, people who are making restaurant selection choices. Um, what should they do? You know, what, how can this inform the decisions that get made in that way every day? Complicated question. Like, I'm a sociologist, so I tend to think about structural things which are very difficult to change because they're often not visible to our consciousness, okay? So I would say the first thing is, in some ways, brings this an obvious thing into consciousness, which is there are all kinds of very good and interesting foods and cuisines in the world. Most of us don't know most of it, okay? And bring a curious, a generous uh, attitude towards it and learn about it just as we are we are willing to learn about wine and cheese and uh, and processed meats uh, from Europe. So in some ways, this becomes naturalized. And what, what I mean by naturalized is this. I'll give you an example. The way in which a French accent may sound sexy or maybe an Italian accent may sound sexy today. Uh, Italian accents were not considered sexy, by the way, uh, until relatively uh, recently. A lot of other Turkish accent, Indian accent is not. This is a kind of an aesthetic deficient that is deeply embedded in us. We have to outgrow this idea that only some kinds of languages, some kinds of languages about some kinds of foods are cool and sexy and open up our mind towards it. And in this comes with a kind of a bringing it into consciousness and be curious about it. I would say that's probably the first thing. The second thing, is not to what is historic, historically considered ethnic. Ethnic it comes from the Greek word ethnos, which means people. So you can represent it by language, you can represent it by the way people look, physiognomy, uh, by the dialect they speak, the religion they have, etc. So that may or may not be a useful category to think about ethnos, a people, and their foods and their palate is and th maybe the second lesson is not to assume the only thing other people contribute non-european people contribute to our taste is spiciness and heat that is the most idiotic reduction in the world i eat a lot of indian food i rarely eat very spicy indian food that becomes a peculiarly mutual caricature uh, outsiders expect it to be spicy so producers make it very spicy and I honestly find a lot of that kind of Indian food too spicy. I, I have my parents cook, uh, my sister-in-law cook. My sister-in-law likes very spicy food because she has a palate that is from Kerala, Malayali palate. That is, she loves dried red chilies. She eats dried red chilies to settle her stomach. That is anathema to my mother in the same household. Right? So it's like begin to make distinctions that are finer than saying, well, Indian food means spicy, okay? Or, or Vietnamese food. Or food. Make it really spicy, which means that is really authentic. That's a ridiculous reduction of, as I said, India has more than 20,000 dialects, 125 mother tongues. So wherever there's a language, there's a cuisine, and each, some of them are very spicy, some of them are moderately spicy, a lot of them are not spicy at all. So open up your mind to these other criteria of judgment making in other cuisines. So I would say these two things, and maybe the third thing, texture, because we also tend to naturalize texture. And this has happened post, uh, I think, Nouvelle Cuisine, and especially kind of the Italian uh, iteration of it, that everything has to be al dente. Uh, vegetable, pasta, that's one way of good taste. Uh, that's not God-given law. A lot of people in the world don't eat things that's al dente. In fact, mm. the Chinese complained about Western food is that food is too hard. Mm -hmm. It's not soft enough. Okay? So there are a lot of ways of thinking about good taste and even texture. Uh, so from the uh, from the consumer's point of view to your question is open up your mind to these possibilities and see how these things are combined in a cuisine, which is not just flavor, but also technique and ingredient and ways of thinking about good taste and listening and reading and listening to people. What are they talking about? And I think it was uh, Sydney Mintz, the anthropologist, 
who said he used to classify restaurant food as institutional food. Mm. Uh, and he said, that's not how people eat and talk about food. Okay. He says, Americans are not going to have a culinary culture unless they eat and talk about food. That is not just restaurant food. That's also food of different kinds of restaurants, different kinds of institutions, different kinds of locations, locations and social kind of uh, relationships with people. Go and visit people, chat with people, eat with them. So I would say these are some of the ways in which the consumer make it a little more conscious. We have to do it initially, then it becomes habit. Like avocado became a habit for me. But I had to open up my mind first. Like wine mm. Uh, mm. became a habit for me. But initially, I had to open up my mind and do the classification that was necessary, learn from people who knew more about it so that I could enjoy it better. That's great. How can we convey or um, extend the understanding of the true cost of food as relates to this conversation? I think I, the, the two things that we have not talked so far that are absolutely crucial, and that has become very visible uh, with, uh, in the wake of Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and also the pandemic, which is the labor that goes into it, the cost of labor. If you have just listened to the discussion on the closing of NOMA, almost everyone has reacted to the labor question more than almost anyone. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, which is a good thing, uh, meaning that we have to pay attention to sustainability in that double sense. So the other question is ecological sustainability. That we just cannot eat these huge hunks of protein like we used to with a kind of with a, a good conscience anymore. We gotta eat, I mean not stop eating meat or fish uh, or, or uh, animal proteins, but smaller portions. Uh, and I think in that we have to learn a lot more from non-Euro-American people mm. who have always eaten a lot more vegetables, a lot more beans. I personally think even today at high-end restaurants, uh, globally, uh, travel through uh, France, travel through Italy, very difficult to get good cooked vegetables. Okay? And we should be, we have to be eating. So sustainability in the double sense of labor in the institution, a restaurant, and the produce that's coming in, what kind of food we, uh, uh, we can afford to eat in the context of uh, climate change. You know? So in that makes a deeper case, in fact, for learning from others the good taste of fruits, uh, vegetables, uh, beans, uh, that we are relatively under-equipped in the Euro-American world. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, that brings to mind uh, kind of the, the point of this whole show, the Umami podcast, which is uh, the study, the exploration of good, clean, and fair food, to borrow the slow food phrase. Um, and I, I love how you brought around, uh, you know, the, the, the conversation about how um, an exploration of new cuisines is also an opportunity to explore different ways of relating to protein or relating to those more, uh, you know, energy cost, you know, foods. And so um, I, I, love, I love that concept. And I wonder if you have more to say about how that exploration takes place specifically within a cuisine you don't know well, uh, you know, specifically in, in something that would be referred to as an ethnic cuisine. Yeah, look at the, look at the smart use of protein. Protein is most, uh, animal proteins are used in most cuisines as a flavoring agent, not as a huge hunk on the middle of the plate. Uh, uh, and uh, it, that's what I love. When I travel, uh, uh, I, I, I find it absurd that uh, airlines don't do more soups and stews because they are mm. also so easy to keep. They're easy to serve, <laughs> it's a great, you know? it's a great point. And they taste great point. better. I don't know why they're trying to mimic these huge pieces of protein that are overcooked and overheated and sitting there uh, instead of borrowing from everywhere in the world. People know how to use small amounts of protein. As a, as a really good flavoring agent, I, uh, and lots of fruits and vegetables and et cetera. Like I, think, so I, I, I would say that's the way to do it. Sorry. 
<laughs> uh, I, I was ju- I'm just thinking, I think maybe they don't because when you hit turbulence, it's tough to get a nice tomato bisque out of 230 <laughs> seats. Safety, I know. Safety, <laughs> they need probably. sippy cup yeah. soups. Sippy cup. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. you go. That's Let's go to stews. I'll go to stews. Dentist stews. <laughs> yes. Um, so let me ask you uh, a couple of just final questions, which is, uh, first of all, what are you reading lately? What am I reading? I'm, I'm reading too much because I'm teaching a lot. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, so I'm teaching a class called Theory, uh, which is mostly, in fact, a lot of it is uh, anthropological theory. And Mary Moll, she's an anthropologist uh, from Amsterdam. Uh, she wrote a book called uh, Eating in Theory. Which is kind of an interesting and a fun read. Mm. Like most academic reads, it's also kind of a, can be convoluted, but a lot of fun. So I, I'm just reading that. Uh, I just finished teaching that, and I'm just rereading. And uh, people should try to read this book by Anna Singh. T S I N G Singh is uh, uh, the mushroom at the end of the world. I'm going to use it to teach next class. Uh, so the mushroom at the end of the world, it's about Matsutake mm. and its global modes of production and distribution and how it ends up in Japan and how it is both a commodity and foraged and also a part of a gift economy. It's absolutely fascinating. And um, should I keep giving you the list? Yes. Um, <laughs> so outline your Manche- curriculum for next semester, please. <laughs> <laughs> and the Manchester sociologist uh, Alan Ward, who wrote a book called uh, "Practice of Eating," uh, which is about basically this whole question of, and I gestured toward it a little bit, that most of what we do in terms of cooking and eating on an everyday basis is part of a habituated world, rather than a decision-making world. It's not like uh, it is, uh, it's not always available to consciousness. And a lot of neuroscience is also showing that, behavioral economics and psychology is showing that. So this book brings together the social and the individual, the neuropsychological aspects of cooking, feeding, called the practice of eating. Um, I think your audi- for your audience, that's a good startup list. Great Sounds start. Sounds great, yeah. I have, a, I have a question, a quick question for you. Um, yeah. Has the publishing process and your um, getting used to that uh, with, with your publications, has that informed um, what audience you're trying to target? Or Brilliant, um, Brilliant question. I'll stop there I would rewrite continue. that whole book. <laughs> yes. I rewrite that whole book. Uh, if I knew there was a wider audience, it has a much wider. It had a much wider impact. People like Liga Mishan and others have uh, cited it. Uh, Tim Carmen, uh, he changed the name of the uh, his column in the Washington Post after reading my book. I wish I realized that other people read the book other than another six sociologists or four anthropologists. Mm. Uh, so yes, I'm trying to be a better writer. Uh, <laughs> trying to write for a wider audience, a smart audience that is not necessarily narrowly academic. Uh, And I'm hoping more of my writing and uh, is going to look uh, towards an audience that is wider. uh, And partly that is linked to the fact is this book of mine, which is a very turgid academic read, was so well received in the wider audience that I was shocked by it. I, I will change a lot of it if I want to rewrite it today. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, I think we will wrap up by just asking you, where's the best place to find and follow you? Ah, um, depends on the day. Uh, uh, Twitter. uh, I'm Ray Chris, one one of my grad students started it off, and (laughs) once in a while I post. Uh, and on Instagram and Facebook, both are closed because those are the places I think, try to think a little more quietly. I don't want to, Mm. so I use those places as a way to collect my thoughts about things. Twitter is my most public medium. So I would say that's probably the place to follow me. 
Thank you. I, I like asking that question, too, because people have philosophies about social media, and I like to hear what those are. Yeah, so my, kind of my philosophy about social media is uh, you should use it the way you want it to be. So mm. uh, not just snark, not just self-promotions. I often promote a lot of other people's work, smart other people's thinking, uh, and I, I agree with you. Social media doesn't have to be snark and, um, and uh, self-promotion only. Mm. So my Twitter is more like that. And that's why I also keep my Facebook and Instagram closed because I want to think about it a little. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, makes sense. Okay, Krishna and what? well, I think we've uh, come to a close here. Um, any parting thoughts? No, that's it. Uh, kind of thanks for having me and thanks for... Uh, giving me an opportunity to talk about it. I had all these notes and we didn't cover anything. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we're going to have to have another conversation. Yeah, absolutely. There's yes. a few left on our pages as well. <laughs> yes, like the new Yelp data and the new Michelin data, mm. time, but that's good. I, like, I hinted about it. Enough. Sure, and also so, what's your favorite deli in New York? <laughs> ah, it's like, uh, I would say in some ways it is still the R- Russ and Daughters. Mm. Oh, mine too. I love it. <laughs> okay, now we're calibrated. Very, very we we know you have good taste. <laughs> yes, yes. Take care. You take Thank care you. as well. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Elise, I loved talking to Krishnandu. Me too. Now, I have a feeling that we didn't cover nearly anything um, that we could in the future. Uh, and that's going to be a little bit of a, um, a battle that we have with this podcast, because in hindsight, you think about all the questions you wanted to ask mm. and you think about all of the topics that maybe, uh, someone was alluding to, but we didn't pick up on cause it's a live format. Yes. Untold depths. Absolutely. Yes. Like Stu. <laughs> like Stu. Oh, that is one area where I wanted us to have more conversation we didn't have time before we wrap this up what else would you like to talk to krishnandu about if we can get him back on the horn well i think there are a few points he made that we could just dive into and spend hours talking more about one of them is the relationship uh that immigrants have running businesses in the u.s um, and working for businesses in the U.S., there's this thing he mentioned called petty commodity production, which is basically this sort of uh, uh, different economy scenario than we are working with in in regular businesses where wages are different. I think I think what you're knocking on. What door you're knocking on is going to be several episodes. There's, I I don't want to necessarily say underground, but there Mm. is a certain um, river of uh, challenges, cuisines that people have to cross in order to get it Mm. onto our plate. An undercurrent, and it's everywhere, and some of it is good, and some of it is bad. It is a bunch of different things that you pretty much uh, can't really have any preconceived notions for, because it's very complex. The Umami Podcast is produced by TNE Networks. Find us anywhere you get podcasts, and on Instagram at The Umami Podcast. Also, Don't forget to check out our website where you can find tons more resources about today's subject. While you're there, consider supporting us with a small monthly donation or one-time gift. And please tell a friend about us. You're listening to the TNE Network. 